Noir is the genre obsessed with systems of oppression. Blame the omnipresent specter of fascism. Blame the allure of organized crime and the corrupt long arm of the law. Or blame that signature American boogeyman, the arena in which all must contend in pursuit of the coveted dream, a force pivotal to dissecting class struggle at the heart of the genre, capitalism. The film noir canon does not shy away from such themes. Indeed, it is frequently blunt in its messaging and dire in its assessment. But it was governed by the Hayes Code, which greatly curtailed the scope of what issues could be tackled. Nowhere is this more apparent than in how the desperate echoes of capitalism ring out across the racial divide. Tonight, we're looking beyond the heyday of noir at two films, Paul Schrader's Blue Collar from 1978 and Steven Soderbergh's No Sudden Move from 2021, both unfolding across the piston-pounding pressure cooker of Detroit, a working man's town fit for a working man's genre. Against the backdrop of the monolith auto industry, we will watch our hapless protagonists rage against a system too big to fail, a system designed to pit the cogs against each other should they fall too far out of line. Welcome to the American Dream. Yeah, well, like a man told me once, step out your door in the morning, you're already in trouble. Just a matter of whether you mixed up at the top of that trouble or not, that's all. I don't know if you're a detective or a pervert. I'd like to say that if you're seeing me, you're having the worst day of your life. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions. I haven't lived a good life. I've been bad. Worse than you could know. I'd hate to take a bite out of you. You're a cookie full of arsenic. There's his story against mine, but of course I told my story better. Hello and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films and talk about them. I'm one of those friends, Fred Pelzer, joined by my friend, Tristan Johnson. And tonight we're navigating the streets of the Motor City, diving into two crime capers built on the backbone of the working class against a backdrop of simmering racial tension. Notably, this is the third outing of Celluloid Dirt, and we're not deep diving into a single classic noir film. Those will be frequent enough in our extended exploration of the genre, but here we have two films, one from the 70s and one from just last year, both very dialed into the role of class in the crime story. How successfully they depict that is up for debate, but to get things started, let's take a look at our first film from 1978, It's Blue Collar. From the author of Taxi Driver comes Blue Collar. The story of three men who spend their whole lives working to catch up. There's going to be some changes, man, in the union. Big changes. Everybody know what the plant is. The plant just short for plantation. And I was on that picket line every day. That's right. Man. I'm still paying the bills and the money out of bar to support my family. And you know you should be done with that now. You have a schedule. This is company time, Bartoski. What are you telling me, man? That I'm going to be doing the work. Our three men. Let's move it, Zeke. You're dragging. You're always dragging the line. Well, the thing I don't understand is why you let the union rip you off as much as management, you know? I do my job. Can't nobody stay no different. I was my own man when I came to work here. I'm gonna be my own man when I leave. That saves you all the time talking about. Keep man, that's our union. I ain't got nothing but one guard. Here's the safe. We'll talk to it later. Let's get it out of here. I kept the notebook. Why? I thought you threw all that stuff out. I hear you got something I want. We can change the union with this book, baby. Just leave me alone, man. I don't talk to no government agent. You can't be seen with each other anymore. First of all, they know three guys did it. Two of them are black, one of them are white. I want no sense. Nobody. Nobody back. We got the wrong house. How do I protect my family? I'm the only one who can protect you or your family. You're my friend, Terry. But you're thinking white. The American dream. If you're rich, you can buy it. If you're anything else, you've got to fight for it. Blue Collar. Blue Collar is the debut feature of director Paul Schrader, who was fresh off the success of his Taxi Driver screenplay. It stars Richard Pryor, Harvey Keitel, and Yafet Koto as a trio of auto workers who spin a union heist gone wrong into a desperate blackmail ploy. Uh, so... Fred, uh, uh, 
we uh, we we settled on this to kind of pair off with our our second film, No Sudden Move, and make a make Detroit, um, the auto industry, and its backdrop the the center of the action. Uh, what was your experience watching this movie? Uh, yeah, this was fresh for me. It's a movie I've been meaning to watch for a while, but I've not seen it pop up on streaming services and or be easily accessible. So I finally bought bit the bullet and paid four dollars to rent it. Oh, God, oh. Um, the indignity. Four dollars, um, cup of coffee. <laughs> it's great. You know, I'm a big Paul Schrader fan. A very recent Paul Schrader convert, but just more, I think more due to the lack of exposure, but um, starting with First Reformed, I, I got on the boat and got on it quick and uh, I've been slowly making my way through his back catalog and have generally loved his his movies. But I found this interesting. It feels like a real outlier. I don't know if that's because he's writing this with his brother or what, but I'm curious your your experience as well. But it, it was, I, I really loved it, but it, it felt not necessarily of a piece with his other movies, which a lot of them tend to feel like they're in conversation with Taxi Driver, right? Like a lot of them are just sort of this right. variations on on that. You're like, okay, you're kind of evolving the Taxi Driver idea, but this has nothing to do with Taxi Driver. So that was really interesting. So uh, no, what, what about you? Um, no, I'm, I'm not extensively watched when it comes to Paul Schrader. I've seen First Reformed. I've seen uh, Mishima, Life in Four Chapters. Um, I've not seen the card counter yet from from last year, but uh, and of course, Taxi Driver, I've got familiarity with, but I uh, I haven't watched a, a lot when it comes to Schrader, which is more unusual, perhaps, or more the shame because he's actually from my hometown hometown of Grand Rapids. That's right. Uh, so uh, I guess the Michigan ties are are strong here, and considering he he sets his first film right in Michigan, part of it was shot in Detroit, part of it was shot in Kalamazoo. I definitely should familiarize myself with more of his catalog soon. I mean, if you really want some Michigan Trader, you should check out Hardcore. Uh, I've I've not seen that, and uh, and I don't actually even know what it is about. Great setup. It's a middle-aged father. His daughter is in California. She goes missing and pops up in a, a porno. And this is set in like the early '80s, I want to say early mid eighties. So he goes out to LA and tries to track her down. We're, we're going to, I'm sure we'll cover it at some point. Now, now that you're series. mentioning this, I, I somehow, uh, I feel like I recall hearing about some outrage in, in the very conservative, religiously conservative West Michigan community about this movie. The main character is a Calvinist from Michigan, you know, playing very deeply on, on Schrader's uh, own backstory and, and history. So I could, I could see why. And he, yeah, he, he, gets, he went to Calvin College in Grand Rapids, I'm pretty sure. Uh, uh, that. Yeah, and then he gets slowly sucked in by the seedy underbelly, uh, underbelly of LA's porn, porn industry. So I really enjoyed it. I mean, I think I said this about Card Counter, but like I'm just in the pocket for, for Schrader and his, his, uh, all his lonely men, so... Here's what I do think ties ties this in some ways together with with his other filmography and um, in some degree is that Paul Schrader to me seems like a, a man who um, who is obsessed with pitting people against institutions with finding how pressures within society keep a man uh, where he is or help inform his actions and growth and certainly here that is very apparent with uh, with the effect of both the auto industry and unions on uh on our three main characters no, that's a really good point he is he is like obsessed about going toe-to-toe with great american sins right like starting with taxi driver in vietnam and straight through you know here and capitalism and race and hardcore pornography light sleeper and and he's drug looking warfare, at it looking at it on the ground drugs he, yeah uh, very, very much. Where, where, whereas in our uh, uh, the other film we're going to look at uh, in this hour, uh, there's there's more of a, a, a slowly climbing the ladder. This this sure. keeps us firmly rooted on the ground level with um, with our protagonists. Yeah, no, that's uh, that that's brought me to mind the um, scene after Kodo's buddy gets busted and flips on them and the union reps are talking about it and you don't even see them right it's it's just focused on yeah their dossiers and just going through their fault lines and and how they're going to break them down uh and i think that demonstrates exactly what you're talking about that it doesn't even 
just it's it's not interested in the the men pulling the strings that they're not even on screen it's it's all about these guys and they've they've come too close to the sun and the, the no, wings are starting isn't... to melt this isn't a game in Schrader's mind. Uh, this is something that these these are real world issues mm-hmm. that have real world effects and forces the hand, forces the actions of of our characters. And I think that's just su- that speaks so much to um, to the core ideals of noir and to what we're um, what we're examining here because. Uh, even though this doesn't look like a noir film, um, it, this is not styled like one. This is set in in the uh, in the late seventies. Um, this is this uses contemporary music. This uh, uh, for the time. This this is not like No Sudden Move, which is a, a a film that is styled in the noir uh, noir fashion. Verging on pastiche, even. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. I, it it is in so many ways on the surface level, an outlier for genre and auteur theory and Richard Pryor's career. And, and so, but I think that all is in service, as you said, to how seriously it's taking this, right. It's not saying, I mean, there's funny moments, right. The, the robbery when they all pop out of the safe and they've got those masks on (laughs) is both like a wonderful character moment, demonstrating that these are not hardened criminal criminals and that they're kind of making this up as they go along how unprepared they are for what they're doing um, but it's also just a great gag but at, at the same time this is not you know Ocean's Eleven or any other soda break heist movie um, that you can think of it's it takes itself very seriously and rightfully so because it is dealing with some serious stuff yeah and and speaking of that um, just to, to lay out for anyone listening a little bit of backdrop on Detroit and uh, and, and on what kind of conditions are, are simmering here when we when we check in in the the late 70s, Detroit has got a long history of, of race riots. And, um, and in 1967, it was, it was particularly bad. And that's, that's during what's called the long hot summer where there were race riots across the country, but nowhere were they more deadly than Detroit. Uh, there are more casualties, uh, more civilian casualties than anywhere else in the country. And, um, and of course these tensions are, are, uh, covering the range from police brutality to housing inequality. Uh, and it all just builds up and into a lot of violence that overflows under the streets. And, um, and this is something that, um, that very much is on the mind of anyone in Detroit at this time and, uh, and very much on the mind of, of Schrader when making this movie. And these characters, I mean, you know, Kodo's big speech, right. Which Schrader plays again at the end, which I, I don't know that we needed, but uh but his the first time around with that speech, that's a real powerhouse, and for good reason because it, it it unfortunately still feels very true. Sadly, it's it is um, it's alarming watching this and feeling so uh, sad. I guess um, at how little has actually changed. How how something like this shouldn't feel still so relevant. Yeah, honestly, I think you could put a fresh coat of paint on this, which is I guess an unfortunate pun uh, considering the ending of the movie, and you could release it today and it would still be very relevant and very fresh yeah and um and adding to all of this is um is the casting of richard Pryor, who um really gives life gives spark to the outrage in this movie and and Pryor is of course an incendiary performer and his very casting comes with certain expectations that 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 i i found the film more than delivers on um, he is there to be a mouthpiece. He is there to deliver some some comic bits along the way, but he's there to get mad. For sure. And I think actually also that this is another through line to Schrader's career of using comedians successfully as in these dramatic roles, right? Just thinking about the last couple of years, you've got Tiffany Haddish in The Card Counter. You've got Cedric the Entertainer in first reformed so and you know going back to here to his first film he's, he's got a, a long history of of drawing on comedians to kind of flesh out a world which i think is important we we were talking before we started recording about what we've been watching lately and one of the things that i've i've been watching a lot of early criterion movies this this month and 
something I've noticed is how much broader the palette, emotional palettes are that movies used to have, that there was room for a variety of human experience. And I feel like one of the things that has happened over time is that movies become very efficient at doing one thing and doing it very well. So horror movies are doing fear or comedies are doing very specific kind of jokes and that kind of thing, but they've kind of chopped off a lot of other stuff. And I think Schrader very wisely brings in these comedic voices and very dramatic movies to help. And and they're still playing pretty dramatic roles, but it it still adds an extra bit to the emotional palette of of what the movie's doing. So it's not just unrelentingly bleak because this could be a real downer of a movie. I mean, it is a downer of a movie, but it could be a real And that's obviously nothing even new to old Hollywood that Shakespeare has plenty of that peppered into tragedies. But even if Uh, you- Billy Shakes, you know what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah, who knew? But you're right. And I think when you move forward, move out of classic, classic Hollywood and move, uh, move toward more contemporary setting, you you do find it to be rarer. And I think I think David Lynch is someone that does that very well. He, mm-hmm. he operates with a, a huge mix of, of tones within any given movie. And sometimes it can be terrifying in the next move, moment, gut busting. Uh, if you're on his way, like, I mean, I think there's plenty of people who just <laughs> have one emotional response to Lynch, which is what the fuck? <laughs> that's fair enough which i wish more movies would elicit the what the fuck response to true true but yeah so i mean talking about richard Pryor, let's uh, let's talk about the performances right because we've got a trio of great leads here we, we do yes and Pryor certainly has is positioned as as the real anchor to it but everyone carries their their weight prior having Harvey Keitel to act as his foil as they gradually get get pulled apart and pitted against each other works so well. Mm-hmm. Harvey Keitel, by the way, it occurred to me while I was watching this and thinking, oh, how cool. He's in Paul Schrader's debut. He was also in uh, Ridley Scott's debut and also Quentin Tarantino's debut and also Scorsese's Excuse debut. Me, yeah. So yeah. has any actor... Has any actor ever been in the first feature of more legendary directors than Harvey Keitel? I don't think so. That's a, that's a good question. That's a good challenge for ourselves. We'll have to keep an eye out for others that we can find along the way. But clearly, he's he'd already had experience with Schrader from, from being taxi driver. So I'm sure that it was easy to get him on board for that. Prior, meanwhile, is kind of, uh, he's... This is landing at the height of his his career as a comedian. This feels like certainly a pivotal moment for Pryor. And the the rage that that both of these men get to feel and feeling they have to protect themselves and their families and and what options they have available to them and and how different those options are. Uh Pryor's genuine uh, his his genuine hurt over uh, over over what he perceives as Kaitel's selfishness for um, for for not seeing that his options within the system are so much so much more limited than that of a, a white man. No, I mean that scene on the porch is uh, it, devastating. It's, yeah, ab- absolutely. So so well played by both of them, and and sets up that inevitable final confrontation, which. I, I couldn't ask for a, a more I don't know, haunting note to to end that movie on, but it only it only works because Pryor and Keitel sell it every way. Hundred percent, and to the movie's credit, it it gets you to that point where you see where both of them are coming from. It's not an easy. There's a simpler version of this movie where it shows Pryor as a sellout, full stop, and Keitel is the principled hero, but the movie does the work so that you can't really fault either of them for the choices that they make. No, that, and that's a credit to, to Schrader and to the screenplay for, for being able to thread that needle uh, because it would be, it would be very easy, but no, at no point do you find yourself judging prior for taking the the course that he does. And, and I guess we're also, uh, we, we can't discount Yafit Koto. He's tasked with uh, a harder role than either of the other two are because he is the he is clearly the third wheel mm-hmm. he's the wild card he um he has to convey a bit of menace and a bit of danger and still be be someone who you are are truly rooting for the whole way yeah well i feel like he's the one who gets to really 
turn the charisma on. I mean, these are all movie stars, right? So they're all to one degree or another charismatic human beings, but within what the, the role asks of them, Kaitel and Pryor are both family men and, and they've got these responsibilities that are weighing on them. And meanwhile, you know, Yafet gets to just kind of let loose and, you know, host parties at his place and get drunk with ladies. And he's, he's just all about having fun. He's charismatic. He's, he's got more than a little bit of edge to him and damn it. His, uh, his death hurts. It, yeah. it, it, it really does. No, it's, you know, it's inevitable it, there, when you, when you're watching, you think there's no way that they're all getting out of here. <laughs> They're all getting out of this mess alive, and you and and it just does seem to telegraph that he is um, he is not going to make it through. But it's all the more all more, all the more reason you're cheering for him when he shows up and roughs up the intruders, and just hoping that he's going to make it a little farther. Right. No, it, the that beat is so important when he he shows up at the house and, and beats them there and, and tosses them out because it lets you think like, oh, maybe these guys do have what it takes to pull this off, and you need that glimmer of hope so Schrader can crush you that much harder by the end when the gears have have just ground everybody down, and even and that goes to that that brutal death in the car painting oh. facility because it just goes on. And you just see him try so many different things to try and survive. I mean, you feel it, it goes on. It goes on so long that you think that he might make it because 100%. You, you wonder why they would hold it that long for for them to just kill him. When he bust finally busts through the window, and they cut away too after he sticks his head through. You have that moment where you go, "Is he alive? Did he get out yeah. and stick his head through and able to get some fresh air?" And then, nope. We find out on the bridge they killed him. And it's so, it's so sad because also he's a great character that you enjoy being around. So there, there's there's one one more reason along with along with the de- the outright depiction of racial tension that this is something that could not have happened in classic noir because I uh, there there is ample brutality in in the classics. However, uh, I can think of nothing that holds on on a, a scene on a death so agonizingly long as that does. And and you, you feel uncomfortable, you feel upset. It's just not something that, that you would see out of the, the 40s and 50s and Trader knows this and he's a student of film. He knows, he knows the genre. He isn't trying to make a stylized classic noir. He's taking the ideas of it and applying it here in, in a way that could only be from this moment in time. For sure. And it's also, you know, we're not that far removed from The Long Goodbye or Chinatown and the start of the neo-noir movement. And while those movies definitely aren't pastiches and are updating the noir tropes, they still feel like they're wearing the same suit jacket as noir. I mean, you know, you know, suit jacks the right metaphor, but you know what I mean. Oh, no, there's exactly. still you're you're totally right. There's still an aesthetic tie between the new and the old, whereas this feels very. It kind of reminds I mean, me it's of the, it's the you you are right. It, it is it, it the the idea of uh, this this takes away any any sense of fashion, any sense mm-hmm. of uh, uh, it positions our heroes anti-heroes however you want to want to call them as as truly blue collar working class it is uh it, it lives up to its name it is about the idea of this working class versus the man versus the institution that that film noir so heavily embodies but it's not it's not about the style or genre trappings of it in the same way Yes, uh, 100% agree. And thinking something else when you brought up the, we started talking about the death scene, the something that really stuck with me is that you don't see the killer, the actual person who facilitates this death, right? The, there's a series of things that have been sabotaged that, and that all happened off screen. And then some union guy drives a forklift up and blocks the door and walks away and Trader very carefully shoots it so you don't see his face and I think that's another thing where in a lot of classic noir and even today 
you know, the, the, it would be personified, right? There would be a specific threat that they would all be engaging with that would be ratcheting up the tension of the movie. And here, going back to your first point, that it's it's not interested in who's pulling the strings. And it's not, it is truly a system that they are up against. And the system is present in all things and it is an invisible weight weighing down on all of them, slowly crushing them. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful way to put it. This, Which, I mean, um, it's a metaphor in the movie, right? Because there's a reason he keeps cutting into the shots of, you know, the massive machine stamping the metal. Like that, that's it right there. Yeah, there's nothing that they could do, no matter what they try, no matter how hard they want. And it's not even presented as an option. They're not even, they're, they don't realistically have a shot at making, at making a difference here. And that is the American dream that they are, they are pursuing. They, are, they, they don't have a real chance. The, the game is rigged. They can't even see who they're playing against. I got nothing else to say. Yeah. Well done. Everything that can be said about blue collar has now been said. And uh, fantastic. We can, we can move on. We can, uh, we can move on to our <laughs> second film of the evening. No sudden move by Steven Soderbergh. You said a man wants to see me. Ali Albert. Can't come in here. What is he, white? Oh, boy. So what's the score? They're sending a man that works in an office to pick something up. You are part of a babysitting team watching his family while he does it. Good morning. Everything is normal, except... What do you want? Is that something you'd say? Normal Monday? I'm gonna shoot you right now. Can I go home now? Wait at the house after. What do you mean after? Right off of your what is going on? What's going on, big guy? Yeah, what are we doing? We're following instructions. Are you helping me or are you not helping me? No, 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 no. Thank you. Set up, man. No Sudden Move is the latest film, though likely not by the time this airs, from the prolific cinematic tinker Steven Soderbergh, Don Cheadle and Benicio Del Toro anchor an expansive ensemble that includes David Harbour, John Hamm, Ray Liotta, Bill Duke, Brendan Fraser, Karen Culkin, Amy Simitz, among many, many, many others, um, in a plot that will be familiar by now to down-on-their-luck criminals spin a job gone wrong into an opportunity, if only they can navigate the intricacies of a system designed to keep them in their place. Huh. Uh, so for both of us, I think, this was our, our, our second go around with No Sudden Move, which uh, we'd both seen earlier in the year. So uh, I'm curious how your, what your reaction was, Fred, and how it may have changed between viewing one and viewing two. This is our first movie on the podcast that we've both had the chance to revisit rather than coming in cold. Um, so I'm excited to get to dig in a little bit more because I definitely found I liked the movie more the second time now that I understood the benefit of watching the first time having the entire picture in my head, I could kind of relax a little bit more in the second one and understand what everybody was doing and why. Because it, it is a movie of so many stacked reveals and twists and betrayals they, that you're just, just constantly playing just catch up. Coming. It's exhausting to a degree. Mm -hmm. uh, the plotting at, uh, to me has like some big sleep levels of convolutions here, which clearly uh, uh, is an established thing that that some noir films love leaning into um, it also makes it really hard to keep them straight the first time you watch them so they do tend mm -hmm. to benefit from from going back in i don't know how much it necessarily matters it matters for the enjoyment to a degree but like if you accept that that they're not all going to make sense if you put them under a microscope and just enjoy the fact that you're going to get betrayals stacked on betrayals and and twists that have only been lightly foreshadowed. Uh, then I think just go along for the ride and and accept that's what kind of movie it is. I know I, I think that's exactly the way to to come into it. And I also came into it the first time around. I, I'm a big Soderbergh fan. I think we both are. I'm a, I'm a fan of Soderbergh. Even his even his late experimental period, I've enjoyed him just kind of doing whatever he wants and. Some of those movies I've really enjoyed. I, I mean, I guess it's not a movie, but The Nick, I think, is one of the best things he's done in the last 10 years. I, I, I think that The Nick is, period, the best thing he's done. I can't think of any anything as I, I would put above it. I do really like Out of Sight. Uh, Out of Sight's great. 
Ocean's Eleven, Stone Cold Classic, I'm sure we'll talk about. I mean, there's quite a few Soderbergh movies that we'll inevitably get to. And actually, a his no, not even his last movie. I was about to say his last movie, but he's made like two <laughs> or three between then and now. High Flying Bird, I think, if it wasn't a noir podcast, would have been an interesting pairing with Blue Collar, especially Kodo's speech. It really reminded me of what Andre Holland is, his whole point of view on the system of, you know, the, the, what the NBA is doing to its players or the not NBA as, as that movie uh, legally very, very <laughs> made very clear uh, is doing to its players is very similar to what the, both the unions and the, the factories are doing to their, their workers of pitting people against people rather than letting them unite and take on the, the system. So uh, I, I, and I think uh, High Flying Bird is maybe one of his best heist movies of the last 10 years. Um, but, uh, <laughs> best movies of the last one, see Steven Soderbergh's best heist movies of the last 10 years, which he, I, I mean, guess there's a, three of them. a list. <laughs> there's at least three movies that are, that would be on that list. He has an affinity for genre in general, but especially mm-hmm. crime stories, especially heist stories. So that is definitely essential when approaching the Soderbergh context to this. We talked about Trader. Trader's a, a, a man of obsessions uh, and, uh, and those come in the form of broken people and the institutions he's pitting them against and sin. Um, Soderbergh is, is a man obsessed with genre and form and storytelling in general. And, uh, and uh, there are very few directors that move on between projects as quickly um, in rapid fire of secession as Soderbergh does. Well, his workflow is bonkers, especially, you know, his, he tends to have a crew of like five people and he's doing three of the jobs on set and then at night, he just edits the movie as he goes. And when the shoot's done, he's like, well, the movie's done. Let's go do another one. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of his quote about Mad Max Fury Road. I, I don't understand two things about this movie. How how they're not still shooting it and how hundreds of people aren't dead. <laughs> uh, and, it, and, and, and it just sets up like the, that he could never make a movie like that. He, no. Even, even the Oceans movies, even his big budget affairs have an intimacy that that do lend them a real spark because it lets these a-list actors all get to to play off each other and that's the real fun of it and part part of the fun with Soderbergh's movies even even something like the Oceans movies uh his biggest budget affairs they're really just about getting these this this a-list team of actors in to spar with each other and that is the fun of those movies not the set pieces it's it's just getting to watch these personalities all all uh, volley back and forth with each other. Certainly plenty of that going around here in No Sudden Move. What a stat cast. It's every every room you walk into, you go, oh, it's you. Yeah. The uh, the return of Brendan Fraser. I was going to uh, say the phrase Brendan Sands. Brendan Sands. The, the Brent, Brendan Sands. We had, Sands, um, yeah. He had the not Ridley Scott Getty kidnapping movie tv tv series yeah the miniseries and then he's got doom patrol on dc yes um and he's got uh an aronofsky coming up right he's got an aronofsky coming up so i you know i i think it's safe to say it's a a a phrasance yeah fraser sauce fraser sauce i don't bring it bring him back what an enjoyable man a hundred percent uh i mean if you if you look into the story of why he left Hollywood. It is very sad and unfortunate. It is, and... it is devastating. It is so sad. Um, God, the mummy where the mummy is sorry to just jump onto this tangent, but that movie is so good and it probably doesn't have any right to be, but him and Rachel Weiss make it work. A hundred percent. I watched it, I don't know, right around new year's cause we were home and it was the holidays and we wanted to watch something fun and it is still great. And I also I, revisited it not long ago, and it does hold up. It does hold up. Also, I could quote many lines of it because I watched it a lot when I was younger. <laughs> more, more Brendan Fraser. More Please. Brendan Fraser in noir movies. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm all for it. He's great here. I don't think there's really a, a weak link on the cast, but most people are just in and out of it so, so frequently, and most people are just doing their thing. Kieran mm-hmm. Culkin is doing his thing. John Hamm is doing his thing. Um, they, they. 
they are brought in because that is the the archetype they conform so well to. Um, I think the one the person most underserved is Amy Simons. You know, she she turns up and you think she's got to have at least one real fun showcase scene, and I feel like she just never gets that opportunity to to cut loose like a lot of the other actors do. No, that's that's fair, and honestly. You could totally believe uh, that that she had something that got cut out too. Sure. That that let her stack something additional into the deck, but um, it's already a pretty full deck, uh, and, uh, and and everyone gets a little bit of a, a moment. But you know, ultimately, this is following um, Don Cheadle and Benicio del Toro, and um, and it's it's their it's their journey or their descent, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I mean, speaking of the deck, managing that deck, uh, Ed Solomon does a very good job on scripting duties. And I'm also always enjoy a fun Ed Solomon movie. I, I should probably, what else, what else is he? Uh, his most famous for men in black and the Bill and Ted movies. Oh, Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, no, that, that's, just plain fun sometimes yes. is what you is what you want and this is this is not a comedy but it most definitely hits comedic beats whenever mm-hmm. it has the opportunity to for sure uh, he also uh previously did mosaic with Soderbergh. the choose your own adventure or not choose your own adventure but interactive hbo series there's like an experiential app it's a whodunit about it, like a children's oh. author. And there's an app version where you could just kind of go through the timeline how you wanted. And maybe you could play alternate versions of scenes. I can't remember. But then there was also oh, wow. huh. a TV series version where they just took all those scenes and edited them together in a specific order to, to have a narrative effect. Um, never watched it, but I'll probably I'll watch that. Huh. I mean, it's Soderbergh. It's going to be worth your time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think Glenn Close uh, stars in that. Uh, so I'm just continuing on what, what Soderbergh's bringing to this. I, I Clearly, um, he has styled, um, he has styled this after classic noir films. He has, he has chosen a time period where everyone can walk around wearing suits. Um, he, he is in the he is at the later end of the classic noir window uh with this 1954 i think uh setting and uh and of course uh he brings in that that cinematography which is a choice that's for sure it is and before i'm sorry before we go i just want to correct myself because i just checked it was i had had my wrong uh 90s um erotic thriller star it was sharon stone and not glenn close that was the lead in mosaic so (laughs) before our you know threes of fans uh email in to correct me (laughs) i'm sure they'll be pouring in um so what do you make those lens choices what do you make of that fisheye um he i soderbergh apparently the the process he replaced uh or he placed a kawa anamorphic lens on a vista vision sized digital sensor uh to try and replicate the look of early anamorphic lenses and then uh the distortion was so bad uh that he actually had to shrink the aspect ratio uh, to a two by 16 by one because the distortion was that extreme at the edges of some of the shots. Yeah, I would say it bugged me more the first time. This time I kind of knew what I was getting into so I could just let go and experience it. Um, maybe is the downside of Soderbergh being his own cinematographer in very exciting and experimental ways is that sometimes the experiment doesn't always work. Even High Flying Bird, again, which I really enjoyed and I thought generally he did pull off shooting on an iPhone. There's still a couple of shots in there where you, you usually the lighting is the issue. It's either blown out or too dark. And he's doing enough to make it work, but you're like, oh, this is not ideal. Um, and I think this is just one of those instances where his experimentation maybe got in the way of 
the ideal version of the execution. Yeah, and I get I, I get where he's coming from with it because there's certainly a lot of um, the classic noir uses cinematography often to disorient the viewer and to and to frame the, no nowhere is this more more evident than third man where 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 the cinematography is is there to destabilize um and and show the main character uh, um on on very shaky ground uh i get where he's coming from with doing it 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 does feel like a lot um uh, and and it and you're also right now that i had already gotten used to this acclimated from the first time it wasn't so bad when i went back to revisit yeah, there's there's really I think it's most distracting in a couple of tracking shots where as the camera's moving, the distortion really becomes highlighted by the way that the edge like the the movement of the background warps. That were the this time around with Momstar really was like, oh right, this is what's happening on the edges of the screen. But the rest of the time, the framing is such that it generally still chugs along fine. Yeah, it does. It, it makes it hard to get a true sense of space. Uh, maybe in in a in a pro in a thing that I think that that we get out of this um, is that at no point are you looking around and are you quite sure the lay of the land. You don't know where where where's the exit, where to where to run. I, I like that that does have a positive effect when it comes to uh, conveying the, the claustrophobic feel of the, the film. That is a good point that he, a lot of his recent work has really looked at using cinematography to get at inner psychology of characters, right? So Unsane and how he uses the iPhone there to sort of suggest the distortion of reality and the loss of information because of a small sensor size or with High Flying Bird and its emphasis on social media and the internet age and being able to broadcast from anywhere. You know, so I think there's a lot of metatextual stuff and a lot of intellectual stuff that works really well with his choices that I appreciate. But then on a pure experiential, like, I want to see a pretty picture part of going to the movies sometimes is not as effective. Yeah, I, no, I don't think anyone would would call Soderbergh one of the the great image makers of of, of cinema, but he he is a restless mind, and he and he's always playing around. And honestly, I I admire that, and I will even if they're not always creating a, a perfect viewing experience, I would rather have someone pushing boundaries and just seeing what works and what doesn't because even if the whole film doesn't necessarily soar under the that cinematography choice, there's moments where it does feel particularly great. I love the mm-hmm. disorient the um disorientation of um of the uh of the ill fated uh dinner uh in the Italian restaurant. And I think that in moments where the tension heightens, uh, I, I think it helps. Totally agree with you. I'd much rather have Soderbergh out there just throwing everything against the wall and seeing what sticks and being exciting than getting another same, same, you know, washed out, gray filtered, very serious movie that, that takes itself too seriously. We have standing in contrast to Blue Collar. We have No Sudden Move and, uh, and while they are playing out over the, the the same city with similar working class struggles. Uh, there certainly is a lot that that sets these two films apart in how they handle the hierarchy until uh, uh, and how they handle what really is the the, the main characters' lots in life and uh, and the choices that they make and what informs them. What jumps out to you, Fred, in uh, in comparing these? I mean, honestly, when I was watching Blue Collar, I. I was mentally patting ourselves on the back because I was like, this is actually a really good pairing they, overall. They do work really well together. Credit to you for suggesting. Thank you. I wasn't going to pat myself on the back solely, but you, it you was my idea. Uh, no, it was it was a good conversation that we had about what, what makes sense for this. So I think we, we, we hit on this together. I think we'll talk about some of the other options that we could have 
could have looked at here in a little bit, but I found, you know, thematically, there's a ton. I think that thematically they work well as two sides of the same coin, right? The blue collar is really interested in the unions aspect of the automobile industry and how that suppresses the working class. And meanwhile, No Sudden Move is really interested in the companies and how they exert their power and their money to suppress the the working class. And together they form a pretty full picture of just how fucked everything is. Yes. And and whereas blue collar we're we're so grounded in um in the uh the paths that the protagonists are on here in No Sudden Move, they are trying to kind of climb the chain and slowly revealing the the next layer and the next layer until they finally get to the the beating heart of the the whole corporation of the whole plot which is matt damon surprise matt damon uh he loves popping in at the towards the end of a movie and just like oh matt damon's at this and 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 giving a a network style speech in a boardroom being so utterly unfazed by what Mm -hmm. by what is going on that that this he he's curious about it he has a fascination with it but it it is it is truly nothing to him dropping Mm -hmm. uh was 300 350,000 was that it 375 i think is where he five uh that 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 even in even in terms of 1950s is it's a big sum of money that ultimately he will he will grow back on like the limb of a lizard Hmm. that was a beautiful metaphor of how you know after a certain point when you're that wealthy it does just keep growing back yeah, and I think that speaks to, I think, one of the core differences in the two movies that determines both tone and content is that Blue Collar is about three working Joes who get sucked into some, and who have some criminal background, but they're not career criminals, and they get sucked into this minor heist that kind of just spins out of control Whereas No Sudden Move is primarily focused on career criminals who know what they're doing and have fun nicknames and have a shared history and backstabbed each other and plots within plots and all that sort of thing. And I think that that, you know, in turn, like I said, informs the tone because Blue Collar, while it has fun moments, it never becomes sort of a, it's never light, right? It's never an airy, like, these guys are just having some fun. It's it's like, man, the, these guys just need a couple hundred bucks, but those hundred bucks are going to be the difference between making it to the end of the year and not making it to the end of the year. And they are in a tough spot, so they have to do this. And no sudden move is like, isn't it fun just seeing what weird, you know, weird turn and betrayal is going to happen next? Uh, there, there's so much more desperation from Blue Collar. Mm-hmm. You, mm-hmm. you feel it. It's dirty. It's real. It, it's something that the movie lives and breathes. Whereas, whereas this feels like, everyone is uh, is being moved about on a chessboard yes and, that's um, it. It, it feels it's a calculated movie and i don't say that as a bad thing um it's an enjoyable thing but um but it's not treating its characters like like they are grounded in real world struggles they are they are in a crime caper for sure but i do think it's interesting that even given those differences on a structural level it's sort of the same story where there's an intended heist they break into a safe the safe doesn't have what's supposed to be in there they have to pivot they end up trying to blackmail somebody with information that didn't realize they're going to get a hold of that indicates some form of wrongdoing and then they uh, go up against the the house and the house always wins and they are uh you know, if you're lucky, if you're smart, you get out a little bit ahead, more ahead of where you were before, but usually at the cost of uh, anybody else who's around. And the pressures of the system are always threatening to flip them against each other uh, mm-hmm. at any opportunity. So you're never sure if they're going to, if they're, if they are going to um, be true to each other or not throughout this. Uh, you, you always feel like anyone, anyone could um, could flip at any given time uh, because that's just what you do in this kind of world. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting too how that kind of influences 
the, the movie's view race. Because again, Blue Collar comes at it at a very grounded point of view. And pri- you know, Pryor's, we already talked about the other speech, but Pryor's, you know, you're thinking white um, observations, again, are just like devastatingly spot on and simple and true. Whereas No Sudden Move feels more, you know, it's more of a history lesson. And it's not, I do think the movie is very conscious of saying like, these are the things that were happening 50 to 70 years ago, but also it's happening now. But at the same time, it is in the same way that it's approaching its genre trappings. It's approaching, I feel like the... Uh, context of race that it's dealing with in a very like uh, it actually kind of remind me of the uh, Watchmen TV series where it's taking what it clearly views as a very under uh, under considered part of American history and one of its uh, one of its many sins uh, historical sins and laying it bare of you know a the redlining and the destruction of inner cities that happened in the fifties that gave birth to the highway system and suburbs and white flight and all those interrelated topics. And then be the catalytic converter and um, the cover up by the auto industry that's led to our current climate crisis. Uh, so, you know, I think it's, no. it is arguing like these are things to be angry about and they're still affecting us today, but it's still so couched in this, like you said, very mannered, no, no uh, sudden move. It has a lot of things on its mind. Yes. Whereas, whereas blue collar is is relatively simple in what it has in what it has on its mind and what it has to say. Blue collar brings it back to to um, how how racial tension is is distributed across the oppression of of systems like uh, like the auto industry and unions. Um, it, it's it's very focused on that being being the issue, whereas no sudden move is um, is grappling with a lot, but it's not doing it at quite the the deep level that that blue collar is seeking to. You know, I wonder if part of it is the fact that blue collar is ultimately about this friendship between these two men and how it's broken apart, and you feel that friendship right it is in a relationship that. The movie invests in that you invest in as the viewer, and so you you are heartbroken when the system successfully not just destroys their plan but destroys their relationship. Yeah. Whereas in No Sudden Move, I mean Don Cheadle doesn't really like nobody likes Don Cheadle. No one, no one at all likes Don Cheadle. You know, either either <laughs> he has no allies. No, like I mean, it's impressive. Like as. There, there's fun to be had in watching that character spin and keep figuring things out on the fly. And, and Matt Damon seemed to have as much respect for him as anyone in that movie. Very true. Uh, <laughs> like that was the one where we were like, okay, this is kind of like equals or with um, Bill Duke, I think also we felt like, oh, okay, these are people operating on a similar level, but you know, everybody who knew Don Cheadle before the movie, he betrayed them or let them down and everybody who meets Don Cheadle over the course of the movie, he is in opposition towards, except for Benicio del Toro, who's racist and is like a reluctant ally the entire way through. You never get the, you know, bonding moment where the two guys are like, Oh, you know what? We're not too, no, not right. too different. You and I, uh, there, there is, there is no, there's no moment where you get that that kind of relief of 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 you know a little bit of camaraderie. <laughs> so I think that that in turn kind of influences. It opens. It allows the movie to open up and be like, Don Cheadle, John Cheadle solely is the intersection of all these different things, whereas the relationship uh, between Keitel and Pryor is the focus of like a very specific thing and so that is what the movie is about yeah uh no absolutely uh i hadn't even thought about it in those terms but um but but it does force a very a very different uh, honestly a very different emotional response in general and 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 i would not say that that no sudden moves uh, a movie that i i find much to get emotional 
mm-hmm. about during you um if uh, and i don't i don't think this is the intent but when i walk away from blue collar you feel you feel that anger that mm-hmm. that schrader wants you to feel uh and it's a, it's a movie made in anger and and that can be a very powerful thing uh whereas whereas you don't um you don't come away with from no sudden move with that you you, you know you find parts of it clever or thrilling but uh but certainly not it doesn't leave a resonating emotional response in its wake yeah it's not quite as lightweight as burn notice not burn notice it's not quite as lightweight as <laughs> burn after reading but um i think it is sort of in a similar vein of you know people scheming and getting over their heads and just you're here just to watch the the plate spin and then fall off um and you're not really here to be like i care about this character yeah that that um that is totally right uh so um obviously talking about about these two these two films kind of bring up to me what i didn't even think about this when we were discussing but uh there's one other very recent release that um that uh is a crime saga that unfolds uh in a in a plot that is driven by unions and uh also involves to some degree lesser degree than than these but some degree detroit uh and that would be Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, which also has Harvey Keitel. Yeah, uh, no, you're right that we didn't bring this one up when we were talking about options, but it's it's an interesting one to put in conversation. I feel like it's a little bit more tangential, though, and it's, you know, I, I, the part where um, Ray Liotta is talking about Reno and speaking to the larger and uh and the 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 cover story of uh the new operation out of chicago like that's all kind of background noise to no sudden move but that is the focus of the irishman but uh also i i mean i love the irishman i'm i'm happy to talk about it again i i love martin scorsese at the end of his career going like let's really sit down and think about these movies i've made huh what I don't think you people got what I was trying to say about them, so I'm gonna make it very clear. <laughs> yeah, um, I it it's such a magic movie, and um, and it's not it isn't noir in in the way that I would normally I wouldn't have thought to classify it in in that that same breath. So it didn't jump out to me when we were talking about movies to to throw into the mix here. Anyway, uh, it it feels it feels related to um to what we're talking about with uh with blue collar and no sudden move but yeah i i can't quite put it into the same bucket yeah i'd agree i think it's it's an interesting one to to bring up right now but i don't think it would have been as as interesting of a conversation overall um and some other ones so we did talk about uh the nice guys shane black's the nice guys which is sort of the bookend of the catalytic catalytic converter conversation to no sudden move right no sudden move is sort of the start of we could do this but we're not going to then the nice guys is the end of that when the auto industry is forced to do it and there is i think there's some similarity of it's you know two guys who don't know each other and don't like each other forced to work together but um i think again it's sort of a tangential intersection rather than a real thematic linkage between the two i've not seen nice guys so i don't really uh i don't really know how to weigh in i mean that is definitely noir that is one that is is operating in a noir pastiche but whereas this is doing more of a callback to the 50s noirs that is doing more of a callback to the long goodbye kind of noir uh sure it's shane black doing the long goodbye (laughs) (laughs) Um, and everything that that implies but i am sure we'll cover it and possibly in our first season oh um we have one of those coming up don't we we do indeed that's a little uh hint a little uh get you get you thinking about what it could be uh you'll find out soon one other movie i just want to toss out just because i also don't know that we'll ever get to it but it is a fun movie that i really enjoyed that not many people have seen it's called the ghost who walks and it's a recent last five years indie crime movie that came out 
that's about a guy who's released from prison around Christmas time and uh, owes some people some debts from before he went into prison. And so he's got to kind of spin some plates and try to get some money together so that he can pay off these debts before he, he gets killed. Um, so it's sort of what Don Cheadle's doing, but without the um, bigger scale and the car hijinks, but it is set in Detroit. And that's the other reason that it would have been uh, yeah. interesting to, to bring up here. I'm pretty sure. It's now I, I wish that I had some, some square pizza to cap off all of this. Uh, 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 perhaps a Coney dog. You, um, you don't know. Have you been to Detroit? Actually, you know what? I take that back. It's said in St. Louis. I saw, as I said it, that's... I went, wait, that's not Detroit. St. Louis is a different Midwest city. So uh, it, it is still somewhat relevant. And I still recommend you check it out. It's, uh, it's not a, it's not a, like a home run by any means, but it is a pretty impressive, low-budget movie, and it has a great lead performance by Garland Scott, who has done like nothing else, but is is pretty great in this. Well, uh, I guess in wrapping up our our discussion from uh, No Sudden Move and Blue Collar, uh, I I will say that I uh, I did I did like both of these movies, and uh, and perhaps speaking to the. Um, good not great slate of movies i've seen from 2021 i still have no sudden move hanging out in my on the lower end of my top 10 for the the year so far i think as i see a little bit more it'll probably fade blue collar uh i thought was pretty fantastic i um i I like it more the more i think back to it uh just because it 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 is a movie that has a point of view and and uh is not afraid to get in your face and and scream it and uh and so I don't know. It's it's held up really well since I watched it a few weeks ago. Same as I said earlier with Schrader, you know, it's a fascinating movie in that it is does feel so not of a piece with his usual single minded obsession with doing a Brisson riff. But um, I I loved it, and like you said, it is it is a movie that is that gets you angry even today, and is singularly effective at at doing what it's doing, and also feels like a point of view and a focus of movies that you just don't get even at the time but especially now and that yeah no sudden move is a lot of fun you know especially if you're a Soderbergh fan it's worth the watch um I don't know that I love it as much as I've loved quite a few other Soderbergh movies but uh you know again like he is one of the most interesting directors working today so anything he does is always going to be worth the watch yeah, uh, absolutely. And that brings us to our recurring segment, What's in the Box? Uh, in honor of Kiss Me Deadly, what is something you've recently watched that's so good it deserves to be glowing in that suitcase? The thing most recently that I watched that I loved uh, is Playtime, uh, which I know is one of your favorite movies. And so I was like, well, I, I was awake at 4.30 this morning. Uh, and did not go back to sleep so uh, because of my very young daughter so I was like well now's a good time to watch playtime and it was great Uh, you know it's it never I think you know I was watching it at home by myself on five hours of sleep so probably not ideal watching conditions as opposed to being in a theater full of movie lovers all enjoying its many pleasures Um, and so I never quite hit like laugh out loud but it it responds to the the gags but it's just so smart and wry in what it's doing that it it still was deeply pleasurable in in a very interesting way that was that was funny but it wasn't laughing funny it was just my god (laughs) it's um it's such a meticulous film and such a well choreographed film uh it definitely uh, has plenty to offer on repeat viewings just because there's so much packed into that. I'm so, so much detail. And I, I mean, honestly, just some of the pleasure is just the filmmaking, right? Like it's, I, there's no story and it just follows his characters into these different setups and it's very, you know, Chaplin and, and Keaton-esque. But the, um, just the bravura filmmaking of how the shots are composed and how information is brought into and out of scenes and how it, especially the, restaurant dance sequence just builds and builds and builds and builds and you just think it's gotta you've got to reach the breaking point at some point and it just keeps going 
and the gags just keep paying off again and again and again and getting deeper each time it, it's it's truly impressive uh i'm i'm so glad that you got to watch it that is uh absolutely one of my all-time favorites uh i i don't think i've watched anything quite on on the level of playtime recently uh but i've been mostly in in 2021 catch-up mode uh and uh and did love drive my car uh which uh, is probably uh a pretty standard opinion among uh, among podcast film podcasts these days uh, <laughs> drive my car I will more also... like drive away with my heart uh-huh um but i also say uh to pick something um uh, more populist than that um that i really 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 liked encanto uh, mm-hmm. i think it's uh, i think it's because i uh i'm so marvel desensitized to most big budget movie making that that just give me uh, an original story in a in a creative world that I would not mind revisiting again at some point in the future. Uh, that counts so much for me right now because it's something mm. that's so absent from the box office landscape. And uh, we could do a lot worse than having having box office hits like Encanto. I uh, that that's heart is in the right place. That has stupidly catchy music um, and. Um, and a lot of really arresting visuals. Uh, I will take that over pretty much any Marvel movie. Yeah, it didn't, uh, Encanto didn't quite totally win me over, but I liked it a lot. And I can't fault anybody for having it in one of their favorites of the year because it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, again, not, it's not quite playtime level, but, uh, but I, uh, or, and it's honestly not quite drive my car level either, but, um, but I, I, you know, credit where credit's due. I'd rather see more films of that um, out on the landscape than most of what we get these days. And Cars 4 <laughs> or Frozen 3 or whatever's coming next. Oh, yeah. No, please, please no. Uh, so uh, in wrapping up, thanks as always for joining us on this excavation of the darkest, grittiest of genres. You can find us online at celluloiddirt.com and on Letterboxd under the handle Celluloid Dirt. And we will see you next time when we christen our first full-fledged season in the name of the most hallowed of noir professions. That would be Fred? The detective. Until then, may your viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a strange phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. <laughs>